Very quick context. We're going to dive right into the text. Jesus is now dictating a third letter. So we're working our way through a series of seven letters recorded for us in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, Third letter. Jesus is the one speaking, dictating the letter itself to his servant, the Apostle John. So verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus speaking, and to the angel, the pastor of the church in Pergamos, right? These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. So this is the aspect, as with all of these letters, the aspect of himself that was already revealed in the previous chapter. He is now emphasizing to this church in Pergamos. These things is, is he that has a two, the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This was his commendation. But I have a few things against you, getting to his now condemnation, because you have there in this church those who hold to the doctrine or literally the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Now his counsel, in light of these things, repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear. But the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. As we have with the previous two letters, let's begin by providing, establishing a bit of a profile of the ancient city of Pergamos. Pergamos was located, like the others, in a region known as Asia Minor, which is present-day western Turkey. Specifically, Pergamos was 50 miles north of Smyrna, and situated about 15 miles inland. Geographically, because of her location, Pergamos was situated at a much higher elevation than the coastal cities, making her an ideal military stronghold. The word Pergamos literally means height or elevation. Historically speaking, Pergamos was known for her beauty. Aside from three temples dedicated to emperor worship and another to the goddess Diana, Perched high above the city was the stunning temple or altar to Zeus. Constructed in the latter half of the 2nd century BC, the altar of Zeus was recognized in its day as being one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Today you could actually go and see the actual altar of Zeus. It's been discovered archaeologically. It's been transported brick by brick to Berlin. You can see it today in the Pergamum Museum again located in in Berlin, Germany. A lot of interesting things about the the altar of Zeus and its affiliations, not just with Germany, but also Hitler uh, and the Nazis. Uh, It's also worth noting that the city was an educational center that focused primarily on the development of medicine. It's kind of what Pergamos was known for. Aside from the fact that Pergamos had an incredible library that contained some 200,000 volumes She was the hometown of one of the most prominent and accomplished medical researchers of antiquity, a Greek named Galen. Connected with this educational pursuit, you also had the temple to Asclepius. Within Greek mythology, Asclepius was the god of medicine and healing, represented by a rod with a serpent wrapped around it, which just so happens to be the same symbol used by the American Medical Association. Historically, Asclepius was known as the serpent savior. During this period of time, sick people from all around the world would travel to Pergamos to be healed by Asclepius. Procedurally, they would be counseled to spend the night sleeping on the floor in the temple. At some point in the evening, the priests would release thousands of non-venomous snakes. If you happen to be bitten by one of these snakes, you would be healed. This is a perfect example of the cure being much worse than the disease. 
In verse 13, Jesus makes really a provocative statement. Might rival one of the most provocative statements in all of the Bible. He says, look again to this church. I know where you dwell. Now he's speaking of Pergamos. But then he adds this detail. Where Satan's throne is, adding then later, where Satan dwells. Now, while we can assume in light of these various pagan temples and the demonic practices associated with them that Jesus is probably emphasizing here how the city of Pergamos was a a satanic, demonic stronghold, that it was dark, wicked. What makes this statement really challenging, however, is that there is nothing in the language or the text itself to indicate that we shouldn't view what Jesus is saying in any other way than being literal. There's no way around that. Now, contrary to most depictions, I hope you know that that Satan's home is not postmarked hell. (laughs) Like, Satan doesn't live in hell. It's not his home. It will be, but it isn't presently. Additionally, because Satan is a created angelic being, he's also not omnipresent. Meaning he, like God, isn't everywhere at the same time. Satan... It's kind of an interesting thought that Satan, while he does, as a spiritual being, possess the ability to move interdimensionally, he is limited to both time and space as you and I are. At a given time, Satan is in one place at one time. He is not in multiple places at multiple times. Satan on this earth is someplace and a location. Again, most incredibly, according to Jesus, who, you know, you should probably take his authority on it. At the end of the first century, Satan had established in this city of Pergamos his base of operations. It's a trippy thought. There's no way around the reality that Jesus is affirming to these believers that Satan, as he's dictating this letter, was presently dwelling in Pergamos where he had established his throne or his seat of power. While scholars will speculate, debate, that maybe the altar of Zeus or potentially the temple of Asclepius, he is the serpent savior, right? Might have had something to do with the location of Satan's throne. One of the more probable and I believe interesting theories takes you all the way back to the fall of Babylon. There is ample evidence to suggest that before the Persian king Xerxes conquered the city of Babylon in 487 B.C. Before the city fell, the pagan Babylonian priesthood escaped. And they were looking for a new location to set up a base of operations, landing on, interestingly enough, this obscure town in western, the western areas of Turkey named Pergamos, that they set up their base of Babylonian priesthood, their operations in Pergamos, 487, 489, somewhere in there. As a result, it is in the city of Pergamos where these particular ancient rites and secrets of the ancient cult that ties itself all the way back to a man named Nimrod and a tower of Babel continued to be practiced. Maybe this has something to do with the throne, the, why Satan would find this to be his base of operations. It's also worth pointing out that according to Numbers 22, verse 5, the prophet Balaam, who we're about to get to in a few minutes, who Jesus references in the letter, also came from the the area of the Euphrates, which happens to be ancient Babylon, connecting the dots. There's no doubt, no question, that this church in Pergamos was positioned, found herself right in the center of a dark culture. A dark dark culture that was hostile to the things of God and the truth. From the sexual immorality associated with the worship of Diana, to the witchcraft connected with Zeus, to the mystical practices related to Asclepius. Every single day, these Christians, these believers, were bombarded by pagan, hedonistic, worldly influences. Aside from this, you can imagine that living in the very place that Satan himself dwelt intensified the spiritual warfare. With all this in mind, let's look at Jesus' commendation of the church in Pergamos. He begins again, verse 13, I know your works, 
and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. The coupling of these two ideas, the location of Satan and their works, was designed to emphasize how impressed Jesus was. I mean, their works. Like in light of their location, in light of the culture that they were living in, in light of the incredible temptation and immorality, this church was a serving church. They were still doing the right things, being obedient to the Lord. Jesus also says, you hold fast to my name. Like faced with a real spiritual battle. These Christians not just relied on Jesus, but they defended his name. And therefore they defended his nature. Jesus adds, you did not deny my faith. Those, these, though these believers were in the middle of a fire, the fire of spiritual oppression, generally speaking, this church remained true. They were faithful. Specifically, Jesus says they remained faithful, quote, even in those days, which Antipas was my faithful martyr. We have no other mention of this man Antipas anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, he's the only martyr mentioned by name in the book of Revelation. But tradition claims that he was the pastor, the angel, of this church located in Pergamos, who, as a result of Domitian's persecutions of the church, was martyred, he was executed, by being baked alive in a bronze bull that was located at the base of the altar of Zeus. Pretty, hor pretty horrific. While this church was a serving church that held fast to Jesus' name, not denying the faith, even in the face of persecution, Jesus does, though, have some stark criticisms. He commends them for, for their work, but he has a few problems. Beginning with verse 14, look at it again. He says, but I have, again, Jesus speaking, a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have there those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. What is particularly fascinating about this particular letter is that while Jesus is clearly referencing two different doctrinal beliefs that were creeping into this church, in his criticism. He holds the faithful in the church responsible for allowing these doctrines to be taught in the first place. Again, look back at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I have this against you, the faithful believers, that you have there in the church those who hold to these doctrines, the doctrine of Balaam as well as the Nicolaitans. It would seem that the issue that Jesus had with this church wasn't the fact that these unfounded doctrines, or even the people who taught them, existed. Jesus, instead, his big issue, what he is critical of, were those in the church, the faithful, who were doing nothing to stop the teaching of these heretical doctrines. Traditionally, in fact, probably in your Bible, there's a little heading, that the church located in Pergamos is referred to as the, the compromising church. It might say that in your Bible under the heading, I believe that a better title for this church would be the apathetic church. Instead of confronting these wicked doctrines, the church of Pergamos was allowing these things to be taught unabated. No one was stepping up, standing up, speaking up. Now, in order for us to unpack what was actually happening in this church, it's important for us to define least discuss a bit what Jesus means when he references here the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Uh, let, let's begin by discussing what we have called the doctrine of Balaam. What is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, you need to know a little bit about Balaam. Back in Numbers 22, we have recorded the most interesting story of a Gentile prophet, Balaam, who is one of the most perplexing and interesting characters in the Old Testament. In way of just a, a little context, the nation of Israel had been liberated from Egypt, but on account of their lack of faith, to enter the promised land when given the opportunity, Numbers 13 and 14, the people of God have been forced to wander the wilderness for 40 long years. 
Now, as the nation over this time grew and her numbers increased, opposition from local powers, local nations, naturally mounted. They felt threatened. And yet each time that Israel was attacked, whether it be by the Canaanites or the Amorites, God granted his people a decisive victory. By by the time you get to Numbers 22, the children of Israel have now once again finally made their way to the land of promise. They're preparing to enter the land again. It requires them, by the way, to set up camp east of the Jordan River in what's called the plains of Moab, alarmed by this development. Such a big group of people moving into your area. The Moabite king, a guy by the name of Balak, he devised a plan of action. Now he knew if he was to confront the children of Israel, uh, mano y mano, in battle, he's going to lose. They outnumbered him. But he had a plan. He writes to Balaam, this prophet, with the following request recorded in Numbers 22, verse 6. He says, please come at once, Balak to Balaam, and curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balak sends this this request. This is what I need. Can you come? Can you curse the people? This is what I need to happen. Now to Balak's chagrin, to his grand disappointment, God warns Balaam. He says, listen, don't do it. I know you've gotten this request. I know that this is what's being asked. Don't do it. I'm not going to grant this. I'm not going to approve this. I'm going to resist this. So Balaam, to his credit, he declines. He declines. But not willing to take no for an answer, Balak has a counterproposal. He offers Balaam more money to go and curse the people of Israel. And even though Balaam knew that God had forbid him from doing this, the money proved to be too enticing. So as the story unfolds, Balaam, he mounts his donkey, and he proceeds ahead. The only problem is the donkey refused to go forward. Upset, Balaam beats his old King James ass until the donkey starts to speak. So the donkey starts talking. Now, unbeknownst to Balaam, the reason the donkey refused to go forward is that because Balaam was being disobedient, the angel of the Lord was standing there in the roadway with a sword drawn, ready to kill him. By the way, this angel of the Lord is Jesus. So the donkey's like, bro, I'm saving your life. And then God grants the ability for Balaam to see what was going on, and he has a powwow with Jesus. Now following this conversation with the donkey, as well as with the angel of the Lord, Balaam is granted permission to go and work for Balak as long as Balaam agreed to only speak the word that God gave him. He could speak no more or no less, so that's the deal. Now, the following chapters document how then on four separate occasions, Balaam gets up to curse the children of Israel, only to pronounce an incredible blessing which infuriates his employer. According to Numbers 31, realizing he's in a tough spot with Balak, but knowing there's no way that God would allow him to pronounce a curse, Balaam gives the Moabite king some counsel. Well, Balaam understood that there was no way that anyone could get God to remove his blessing from his people. There was no way to do it. Balaam suggests that there might be a way to entice God's people to exit out from under God's blessing. There's no way you're going to get God to curse his people, but you might get them to behave in such a way that God would curse them. Basically, the counsel, the advice, is why don't you get God to judge his people for you? And guess what? It worked. The Moabite king sent in his prettiest girls, to lure the men into sexual sin and idolatry, and God judged the people with a great plague. Now, scripturally, because of his evil actions recorded in these chapters and numbers, 
Of all of the Old Testament characters, Balaam finds himself mentioned a lot in the New Testament. Aside from this passage, in 2 Peter 2 verse 15, we read that they had forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And then in Jude 1 verse 11, we're also warned of those who have run greedily and the error of Balaam for profit. We have the way of Balaam. We have the error of Balaam. But now we have the doctrine of Balaam. And regarding this doctrine, there are a few obvious characteristics that Jesus is seeking to emphasize. First, we can assume the doctrine of Balaam was one of moral compromise. That seems evident and substantiated by our text. Jesus points out that within this church, there were those who hold to this doctrine. And what doctrine was it? That Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed idol, so to commit idolatry as well as sexual immorality. And yet, well, there's no question that the doctrine of Balaam is connected with Im- immorality, moral laxity. At the core of Balaam's story sits the reality that this man, a true prophet, it's kind of a crazy thing, but a true prophet of God viewed his service to God as a means to an end. Like we're told that he loved the wages of unrighteousness and was greedy for profit. It was his motivators. Though Balaam was a sanctified prophet, through whom God actually spoke. And while Balaam received genuine visions, prophetic visions, it seems Balaam was always looking for a way he could take his real anointing to profit himself. Like in a sense, Balaam presents for us the prototype of a corrupt teacher who twists the truth of God's word for their own personal gain. You know, Not that we don't see those people all over the place. Aside from the doctrine of Balaam, Jesus also points out that within this church there were those who held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In his first letter to the church of Ephesus, as we've already noted, Jesus mentions that he hated, but but he says he hated, quote, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In this instance, Jesus is clear their doctrine was also something he found to be equally despicable. Two Sundays ago, I mentioned that this word Nicolaitans, it's a compound of two different Greek words. Nico, meaning to conquer, and laetes, meaning the people. Many scholars believe the Nicolaitans were a group seeking to insert the Old Testament concept of the Jewish priesthood into the New Testament model. In a sense, they were fostering a religious structure that demanded the involvement of a priest in place of a personal relationship with Jesus. Their claim was Christians, like the Israelites, were also in need of a priestly intermediary, someone to represent them before God. And to that I would say we are, but we have Jesus who fills that role. In the end, their intention was to lord the clergy over the laity, to conquer the laity. David Guzik observes, writing, quote, the title here, Nicolaitans, possesses the idea of a profound authority and hierarchical separatism. Because no father ever wants someone else telling his kids what he thinks of them for the second time, Jesus says this entire notion was something that he hated. He hated. I was a smart aleck little kid in Sunday school, you know, you'd say, you know, I hate this. You can't say I hate this. God doesn't hate anything. And me being the smart aleck would be like, well, let's just open to Revelation chapter 2. Because Jesus hates things. And if he hates things, then I can. I'm just being Christ-like. <laughs> he hated. When Jesus says he hates something, we should too. Applying this to the church in Pergamos, while they were a serving church that held fast to Jesus' name, refusing to deny the faith in the face of persecution and incredible spiritual warfare, Jesus was concerned that they were allowing 
these false doctrines to be taught, to begin to take root in their midst. The church, the faithful aspects of this church, they were tolerating sexual sin. They were tolerating blatant idolatry. Motivated by greed, like Balaam, their leaders were using the ministry as a means to their own ends to enrich themselves. Sadly, the clergy was exerting an influence over the laity they were simply not entitled to. While this all seems rather straightforward, you can understand why Jesus would be upset by it. In order for us to gain a more complete picture to the way that these doctrines were creeping into the church, and why that's important is we want to keep them from creeping into our church, we need to discuss what movement in church history Pergamos represents. While Ephesus represented the post-apostolic church and Smyrna the persecuted church, this church represents the next movement in church history known as the Byzantine church period or the church of the Holy Roman emperors. Again, last study I noted that beginning with Nero, for some 250 years the Christian church, our brothers and sisters, endured ten distinct waves of persecution. All of them were brutal, but it could be said that the final wave of persecution initiated by Domitian, uh, I mean, excuse me, Diocletian and his successor Galerius proved to be the worst. In 303 AD, Diocletian rescinded all legal rights of the Christians. What ensued was a slaughter. Early church historian Eusebius of Caesarea writes of the martyrs during this period. He writes, quote, For they drew the staunchest branches together with machines and bound the limbs of the martyrs to them, and then allowing the branches to assume their natural position, they tore asunder instantly the limbs for, for those whom contrived this. All these things were done not for a few days or a short time, but for a long series of years. It's a brutal way to go. He describes Eusebius in one instance when a hundred men, young children and women, were slain, being condemned to various and diverse torments, some suffering decapitation, others tortured by fire, so that the murderous sword was blunted and becoming weak and broken, the very executioners grew weary and relieved each other. While it's truly astonishing, this period of persecution, Eusebius does note He says, in these conflicts, the noble martyrs of Christ shone illustrious over the entire world. The evidences of the truly divine and unspeakable power of our Savior were made manifest through them. Some historians estimate that during this persecution brought about by Diocletian, for every one Christian who was martyred, again brutally, some four people ended up becoming followers of Jesus Christ in response. Incredible persecution led to incredible evangelism. The church exploded. Now, recognizing that political climate is important for for it sets the stage for what comes next. This persecution of Christianity, it had been intense. But the church continued to grow. And because the church continued to grow, public perception of what was happening started to wane. So much so that in 311 A.D., while on his deathbed, and his final act as emperor, Galerius, issued what was known as the Edict of Toleration, which put to end any and all violence uh, directed towards Christians. Then one year later, in 312 A.D., as his armies marched into a final battle hoping to reunite the Roman Empire, this new emperor, Constantine, claims to have received a vision from heaven of a cross with the command, in this sign, you will conquer. The next day, before they went into battle, he instructed Constantine, all of his troops, to adorn their shields and their helmets with the Christian symbol of the cross. Now, because Constantine's armies proved victorious, in in a way that some have seen as proof that he converted to Christianity, others may be just an active, shrewd, political savvy, In 313 A.D., Constantine took the Edict of Toleration one step further, issuing what was known as the Edict of Milan, 
He legalized Christian worship and he restored all of the property that had been confiscated from the church and from believers. It was a major reversal. And the Edict Constantine actually writes, quote, It is proper that the Christians and all others should have liberty to follow that mode of religion which to each of them appears best. For the first time in her entire history, the Christian church throughout the Roman world was free to operate openly in society without fear of religious persecution. Now, while the official merger of the church and state would come roughly 60 years later, and we'll get into that next Sunday, history does show how Constantine became very involved in Christian affairs. And there are some instances where this ended up being a great thing. As just an example, the Council of Nicaea ended up rejecting a heresy that was taking root in the church known as Arianism. It produced one of the very first Christian creeds, the Nicene Creed. This was done under the the authority and leadership of Constantine. However, overall, the favor of the Roman emperor that the church was receiving would yield several unintended and in many ways tragic consequences within the church. Because the church now enjoyed the protection and the financial support of the state, two things happened. First, the church became susceptible to institutional corruption by those who saw her as a way to amass power over the people. But secondly, in order to keep and maintain this favor with the state, the church of Jesus Christ began justifying moral and theological compromise. One would be right to observe that once the the, the satanic strategy of persecution failed, which was Satan's first strategy, I'm going to persecute the church. When that failed, the wily devil saw then privilege and power as a way to minimize the church's effectiveness. And the old saying is true, isn't it? Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Let me explain how those corrupted by power were able to twist God's word in such a way that it not only justified moral compromise, but created a theological need by which those who controlled the church could enrich themselves. In the process, again, the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of, Nic- of the Nicolaitans at play in church history. First, it was during this period that the theology of grace was twisted to justify moral laxity. Because the church was scared of losing political favor, of losing the financial backing of the establishment, the doctrine of grace was warped, whereby Christian liberty became a license for sin. You see, in this time period, a a person could live like hell and still go to heaven. Why? Well, you know, Romans 5 verse 20, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So the doctrine of grace was twisted to justify sin. But it was also, secondly, during this period of church history, that the church, and, and more notably the clergy, started to see themselves or itself, the church as an institution, as being the dispenser of God's grace. So so don't miss this. They were twisting grace to justify sin, and then they were using grace, because they're the dispenser of it, to amass power. Instead of taking sin directly to Jesus, coming to the cross, and receiving God's grace through faith, a theological position emerged in this time period that required you to instead do something else. You need to take your sin to the church. In fact, we're going to make these booths that you can go into and confess your sin to a priest. Who, whose job it would then be to what? To tell the individual what they needed to do to earn back God's grace through their works. So they twist grace to justify sin. The church takes the position of dispensing grace, so you now have to come and get instructions on what to buy, what to do, throw up your Hail Marys. They are the dispenser of grace. 
Because the people now need a priest to dispense grace so they could receive God's forgiveness, it's only logical that the church amass incredible power over the people, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Sadly, as a fact of history, it doesn't take long for these church leaders to find out ways to monetize their new influence. People need the grace that we, we're giving. How can we make a buck? And again, it's during this time period that certain concepts, predominant today in the Roman Catholic Church, which we'll get to next Sunday, but the concepts of penance, indulgences, purgatory, you know, a place that you've got to work yourself out of, sainthood, icons, relics, started appearing in the church and in her literature. Literally, the church was ruling over the people by utilizing a twisted set of doctrines all designed for personal gain, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam. Like in the end, during this time period, you could live in moral compromise and still receive God's grace and forgiveness for the easy price of 1995. Well, the church in Pergamos and this Byzantine period in mind, let's get back to the text and look at Jesus' counsel. Verse 16, Jesus says, He says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's interesting how Jesus parses his counsel here. Well, there were those within this church guilty of promoting these twisted, heretical doctrines, Jesus' counsel focuses on the faithful remnant within the church allowing these things to be taught. That's who he speaks to. His exhortation begins how? With the word repent. Which notes a changing of the mind that manifests a change of direction. Because the faithful were not fighting against what was happening in their church. Jesus starts by saying that that needed to immediately change. He adds, right? Repent, change, do something or else. If you don't take the next necessary actions, I will. He says, I will fight against them. Repent, do something. If you don't, I will. Like in the end, Jesus' criticism of this church was that the faithful had been lackadaisical and how they were allowing the growing influences of these warped doctrines to take root. They weren't doing anything, in fact, to stop them at all. They were allowing a cancer to spread throughout their body. Jesus says, you guys need a man up, take a stand, go on the offensive, or else. Because Jesus loves his church and this church. Jesus is clear that if they didn't handle the situation, he would handle it himself. He says, look at it, I will fight against them. In Greek, this word that we have translated fight against, it means to wage war. It's violent. You know, it's not an accident in light of that, that Jesus begins the letter how. In verse 12, he introduces himself as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. You need a sword if you're going to wage a war. And this was not a dagger, but a battle sword. Six foot tall, only wielded by those that were experts. In this warning in verse 16, Jesus explains that the sharp two-edged sword described back in the first chapter is actually what? It's the sword of his mouth. Now, the sword is different, but in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we're given kind of a, a bit of context for how powerful and piercing a dagger is. We can only extrapolate how piercing and dividing a battle sword would be. We're told the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's so sharp that it will pierce even to the division of soul and spirit. The very thing that makes you you, the Word of God cuts down into. Not just a physical sword to cut you in half. It'll cut down into the very part of your being, who you are. The division of soul and spirit, this sword will cut joints and marrow. It's a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, in considering all of these things and their historical context, you kind of have to wonder how a corrupt element within the church was able to introduce 
so many non-biblical, heretical doctrines. Like, how does something like this happen? Tragically, the answer is found in the reality that it was also within this period of church history that two things happened. The leaders of the church stopped teaching God's Word, and the people in the church stopped studying God's Word. Heretical doctrines were able to come in because the Word of God was being taken out. Like Sadly, the faithful within this church, they failed to heed Jesus' warning. Like That's the truth. Jesus says, repent or else. They didn't. The church of Pergamos didn't. They failed. Which in turn, historically, we have the evidence that Jesus made good on His promise. He says, repent or else. They didn't repent. The or else has actually happened. We consider that the fundamental catalyst for what we call the Protestant Reformation, a movement that ends up rejecting all of these non-biblical doctrines promoted in this church. What was the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation? It was a return to the study and teaching of God's Word. Like Jesus actually fights against this church, and history affirms that He fights against her with the Word. The word of his mouth. Jesus closes his letter with two promises to him who overcomes. First in verse 17, he says, I will give some to the overcomer of the hidden manna to eat. And invoking this Old Testament image of the hidden manna. And you can read about the manna on your own, Exodus 16. Jesus is here reiterating the fact that there was nothing better than the perfect provision that one receives from his word. If you overcome, I will give you of the hidden manna, the special nourishment that you need spiritually. In John chapter 6, verse 41, Jesus says, he says, I am. If you have any question about what the hidden manna was, Jesus says, I am the bread which came down from heaven. God's word is food for the human soul. Secondly, Jesus says to the overcomer who fights against these doctrines, he says, I will give to him a white stone. Now, in Roman society, white stones were used in all different kinds of ways and all different types of purposes and context. And yet it would seem because this stone, we're told on it, was written a new name, which no one knows except him who receives it. This white stone was likely an invitation. Jesus is like, I will give you bread to eat food for the soul, but I will also give you a white stone on which is a name written only you and I are going to know. It tells us that this is likely an invitation, which white stones were used for, with the destination most likely being heaven. When you couple the hidden manna to eat and a white stone on which was a new name written, we understand that what is Jesus promising to the overcomer? It's very simple. He says, if you overcome, if you fight against these things, if you resist these things, if you overcome these things, this is what will happen. You will receive a greater, deeper revelation of me as well as a more deeper personal relationship. He promises greater revelation and a deeper relationship. So, with the time left, what is Jesus saying to us, to you and me, to our church, through this letter? First and foremost, I think it's safe to say the greatest danger for any church is not outside opposition. I mean, again, historically, we know that when a church is opposed, when it's persecuted, it it yields the opposite effect. (laughs) The church is purified, it becomes more powerful, more pronounced, more distinct in its culture. So the the great danger for a church, for our church, is not outside opposition, but as illustrated in this church, inward corruption. Like it's one of the reasons a separation between the church and the state is, I believe, advisable and warranted. While our founders never intended to protect the state from the influence of the church, they did recognize through experience how important it was to protect the church from the corrosive influences of the state. What was their experience? The Church of England. They're like, we got to protect the church. We need to keep these separated. Now, to her credit, this church in Pergamos, she was determined to hold the front line against the enemy. She was on the front line. This is where Satan dwelt. 
The opposition to Christianity in this church was, was fierce. These believers, though, they remained steadfast. They served the Lord. They were godly in their witness. Even when faced with the prospects of martyrdom, they boldly defended the name and reputation of Jesus. And yet, there was a problem in this church that did totally lead to her downfall. This church no longer existed. While on guard for a frontal attack, this church was ignoring a spreading cancer in the camp that would yield the same deadly result. Without their knowledge or awareness, Satan had switched tactics. His strategy was no longer opposition, but infiltration. I mean, if you can't beat them, join them. Satan enters this church, and he destroys this church from within for one reason. The faithful refused to do anything to stop it. Now, for our purposes this morning, it's worth considering how it is that Satan destroys a church from within. Well, the obvious answer, as illustrated again in Pergamos, is moral compromise. A tolerance of sin. Especially if that tolerance is engaged for benefits of political favor or protections or expediency. Tolerance of sin will rob a church always of its power and standing. But the question begs, how does a faithful church really reach the point where moral compromise is both allowed and justified in a church community. How do you get there? I believe there, there really is a simple answer to that question. A, an answer that's illustrated by this church in Pergamos, as well as demonstrated by what happened during the Byzantine period. You see, my friends, when the doctrine of grace is distorted by false teachers, you're in danger. And it's a danger that's exacerbated when God's people aren't even aware it's happening because they don't know God's Word. It's interesting to me that the fundamental criticism that Jesus had concerning the church in Ephesus, again, there was no criticism of the persecuted church of Smyrna, right? So the only other criticism at this point was back in Ephesus. And what was it? This church in Ephesus was fearing. They were afraid that worldly influences might take root in the church. It was a good fear. But what happened? Well, she warped the doctrine of grace with the intention of fortifying moral walls. Wanted to protect the people. Fearing sin. No longer was the gospel of Jesus grace, period. Grace and grace alone. But in Ephesus, the gospel had been distorted to legalistically include grace and do these things or grace, but don't do these things. In turn, as we've discussed, she left her first love. It was no longer just grace. Ironically, though, this second criticism in the seven, this church also is guilty of twisting the doctrine of grace, but in an entirely different way. In order to excuse sin in the camp, it wasn't a grace and do these things or a grace but don't do these things. Her leaders, the leaders in Pergamos, embraced a grace so I can do anything. Gospel distortion. You see, to justify moral compromise, grace was intentionally distorted to be something that you could earn more of. And because you could earn more of it, you could expend it when needed. Sadly, a relationship with Jesus was exchanged for a transactional partnership with the church. This is why the core purpose of Jesus' letter was what? He pleads with the faithful to be ever vigilant. Tragically, they weren't. So Jesus came and waged war on her. Never forget, Zach, why do we care about doctrine? Why do we care about weighty theology? Why do we care about these things? I would much rather prefer dessert than beef jerky. Sometimes your beef jerky is hard to swallow, hard to chew on, just weighty. Why do we care? I'll tell you why we care. Bad doctrine 
always leads to bad behavior. Always. Once more, anything other than grace and grace alone, the reason we should defend grace is that anything, any distortion, any perversion zaps the gospel of its power. In a church of its position, history attests that when a church no longer fights to remain doctrinally sound, the consequences are catastrophic. That's why we care about doctrine. That's why we talk about doctrine. That's why we teach the Bible. In closing, the biggest problem with this church in Pergamos was the fact that because they did not know God's word for themselves, false teachers were able to take advantage of them. They were not Bereans. They didn't study it. I, I, I will say this and I'll close with it. Christian, if you fail to study God's word for yourself on your own, then it's safe to say you don't know God's word. And if you don't know God's word, then it's highly likely you'll never be able to recognize when someone twists it. And you won't know how to defend against it or possess the skills to fight back against the real attacks of an enemy. If your only Bible time is Sunday morning, you are not equipped to fight against the enemy. As weighty and heavy and substantive as what we attempt to do here at Calvary 316 is, if this is your only meal, you will die. And Jesus at some point will come and fight against you. You need God's word. It is the hidden manna that we eat and we consume and we dive into knowing that it's alive, it's living, it's powerful. It's how we engage with Jesus. It's how he engages with us. And it's how in the process of planting ourselves by a river of living water, our roots sink deep. It draws in the nourishment that we need for us to grow and produce fruit organically. This is not a religious thing, a religion. It's a relationship. So how do we relate to Jesus? How do we engage in a relationship with Jesus? We do it through his word. It's what he gave us. It's why, as we'll see later in the book of Revelation, Jesus will actually say his name will be the word of God. So, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, Lord, we thank you for this letter that you wrote to this ancient church.